The Old Covenant reading for this morning is taken from the book of the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 35, beginning at verse 1. We'll be reading through verse 10, which is also the end of the chapter. And I want to draw your attention to one thing in particular about this beautiful messianic prophecy. It, it is the fact that God is promising that with sending the Messiah, he is going to bring both vengeance and salvation. I want you to think what it would be like if this was the only messianic passage you had, what you would be expecting the Messiah to do when he comes. Isaiah chapter 35, beginning at verse 1, the word of the Lord. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy in singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak knees, and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God, He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals, where they lie down, The grass shall become reeds and rushes, and a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come up on it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Here endeth the Old Covenant reading. The New Covenant reading is taken from the Gospel according to Matthew. Matthew chapter 11, beginning at verse 1. We'll be reading through verse 6 this morning. The word of our God. When Jesus had finished instructing his twelve disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and he said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Please keep your place here in uh, Matthew's Gospel, as this will be the primary portion of God's word for our morning sermon. You cannot put God 
in a box. This means that you cannot put Jesus in a box either. Nevertheless, the vast majority of Americans, including not a few Christians, actually attempt to do that very thing. We therefore ought to ask ourselves an obvious question. In what ways might we be doing this? Are we seeking to know, to love, and to follow Jesus as he has revealed himself to us in Holy Scripture? Or are we covering over aspects of his character in ministry or the demands that he places on our lives to make it more comfortable or to cause them to fit with our preconceptions? Uh, This challenge has been with the people of God for 20 centuries. As we read the four Gospels, we discover that the Jewish people had a very diverse set of expectations of what the Messiah would be like and what he would in fact do when God eventually sent him into this world. Now, many of these understandings were accurate, but incomplete. Many people also had a great deal of difficulty of adjusting to the fact that the Messiah would come twice and not simply once. And therefore, they expected Jesus to do at his first coming what he would only do at his second. The good news is this. Jesus meets us in our confusion. Let me say that again. Jesus meets us in our confusion, and he guides us to a fuller and richer understanding of who he is. But Jesus only does this if we are committed to trusting and following him. Embracing Jesus as our Savior and Lord necessarily means letting go of our preconceptions so that we will come to know and worship him on his own terms. This morning we're turning a corner in the gospel according to Matthew. Uh, Up to this point, Jesus has received some persecution. There has been opposition in Jesus' ministry, but for the most part, it's been mild. But starting with this passage, running all the way until Christ's crucifixion, we're going to see the opposition to Jesus by the Jewish people is going to grow in intensity and move to ever more severe uh, attempts to the place where the people even want to put him to death. Uh, This is important for us to get Because that opposition is actually sharpening something. It's not merely that we're seeing that when people's preconceptions about who the Messiah should be are not being met. That is, Jesus wants us to serve his agenda rather than him to serve ours. Oh, that's an important truth. Uh, that, That very opposition focuses us down on one of the most important questions that we can ever ask and have God answer. Who exactly is This Jesus. We're going to look at this morning's passage under three main headings. First, a faithful question. Second, Messiah has come. And third, a simple yet demanding challenge. Let me give those to you once again. First, a faithful question. Second, Messiah has come. And third, a simple yet demanding challenge. Now, before we look at those movements, Matthew wants to set the scene and give us some of the background uh, for how this passage is going to unfold. Please look at verse 1 with me. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, 
He went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. For those of you who have been with us, as we've heard over the past several weeks, Jesus had been preparing his inner circle of 12 disciples for their very first missionary journey without him. And part of that preparation has been to warn them that as they go out and proclaim the good news that the kingdom of God is at hand, not everyone's going to welcome them with open arms. Some, by God's grace, will. But they will also face severe persecution and hardship. And this is not some people won't like you or call you names. What Jesus warns us about, warns them about, but by extension warns us about, is actually quite jarring. See, because Jesus loves us, he tells us the truth. When you stand for Jesus against the world, the world will stand against you because it is standing against Jesus. And so Christ's words are not something just to brush over. They are an honest warning to us all that as we bring the gospel to the world, we will face persecution and hardship. Behold, Jesus says, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake. Indeed, brother will deliver brother over to death and father his child. And children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. And then Jesus sends them on their way. Now, one of the intriguing things about Matthew's account of the gospel as he never tells us anything about their experience. We've had all this build-up. He sends the disciples out, and he doesn't tell us anything about the disciples' experience. And in fact, unlike Mark and Luke, he doesn't even tell us about them returning to Jesus. We just discover that they're back with Jesus at some later point in the gospel. As Jeffrey Gibbs points out, it is not possible to know for certain whether this gap in Matthew's story is deliberate, and if deliberate, what it might mean. Yet, a rather obvious implication of this omission is of some value to us. Matthew was interested in narrating the story of Jesus and not of the twelve. Even though the twelve are sent, they only go out to extend in preaching and miracle the ministry of Jesus himself. And now that the twelve have been sent out, instead of Jesus taking a well-deserved break, surely he could use some rest, Jesus continues his own demanding work of traveling from town to town throughout Galilee, teaching and preaching about the kingdom of God. And while the twelve have gone out with this, I would say, jarring, warning, ringing in their ears, Matthew brings us to one of the greatest men of God who has ever lived, while he is already experiencing the very sort of persecution that Jesus warned his inner circle of disciples about. Look at verses 2 and 3 with me. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? 
Uh, those opening words provide critical context for us in understanding John's question. First, he was in prison. Please don't forget that. We're going to come back to that later in the passage, but it's important to understand Herod has already arrested uh, John the Baptist, and eventually he's going to cut his head off. The first thing to realize is that John is in prison. Second, John was hearing about the deeds of the Christ, and this great man of God was puzzled. Presumably because he was expecting the Messiah to do something else, something that Jesus apparently was not doing. So John asks a question. Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Not surprisingly, this question has puzzled um, Christians who try to understand this passage from the first century right down to our own day. The very last person that we would have expected who would have struggled with the identity of who Jesus was would be John the Baptist. He is, after all, one of the greatest men of God who has ever lived. He is one who has boldly and fearlessly been at work preparing the way of the Lord. And we know that God himself has revealed things to John about Jesus' identity. And so this question strikes us as rather puzzling. So what are we to make of John's surprising question? I have titled this section a faithful question, which gives away part of my own perspective. But but by calling it a faithful question, I don't mean that John was not struggling. John was, in fact, struggling. The reason why I call it a faithful question is John was struggling in faith. And the right thing to do with his struggles was, in fact, to bring them to Jesus rather than keeping those struggles to himself. Please make sure you apply that truth to your own lives. Um, Jeffrey Gibbs helpfully states the challenge we face in interpreting this passage. Was the Baptist really asking his question for his own sake or merely for the sake of his disciples? The central thrust of this passage emerges from our Lord's reply to John and to his claim that in his ministry of wonders and preaching good news, the promised renewal of all things was already taking place. Yet there is a strange twist to Jesus' answer. Even though the prophecies are coming true, Jesus' ministry will have a paradoxical character that can cause one to stumble and fall away without the proper eyes to see and ears to hear. So let's make sure we understand what Professor Gibbs is saying, because he's spot on on this passage. First, and this is important to grasp, the good news for us is that the central thing in this passage is not John's question, but Jesus' response. So even if we don't nail down with 100% certainty whether John was asking this question so that his disciples would hear the answer, or for his own sake, we still have the heart of what Jesus is trying to teach us. It's Christ's answer that is central. But second, Professor Gibbs points to the paradoxical nature of the way that Christ was carrying out his messianic ministry. The fact is this, Jesus did not fit the expectations of his contemporaries in many ways as the Messiah of the Jewish people. And this is something that caused many first century Jews to stumble over him. 
Now, who causes that stumbling? In one sense, it's Jesus himself. He is the stone of stumbling and the rock of offense. But the fault in the stumbling isn't with Jesus. The fault lies in the sinful human heart that says, I'm going to hold on to my conception, rather than surrendering it and receiving God the Son as he truly is. Now, John the Baptist is not stumbling in the sense of stumbling the fall, but he is rather confused. Our confusion leads to stumbling when we try to resolve it autonomously. That is, when we're confused about the Bible and how it matches up with reality, and we try to resolve it as though we're a law unto ourselves, that sort of dealing with confusion leads to a stumbling and even perhaps to a fall. However, when we bring our confusion to Jesus in faith, he will lead us to solid ground. As I said in the introduction, Jesus meets us in our confusion and guides us to a fuller and richer understanding of who he is, so long as we are committed to trusting and following him. If you trust and obey Jesus, the Lord will work to move you away from confusion and towards understanding and stability. If you disbelieve and disobey Jesus, you will move to greater hardness of heart and to that stumbling which results in a disastrous fall. Beloved, everything depends on what you do with Jesus. So did John ask this question for his own sake or merely to assist his disciples in their understanding of the faith? If you think about what a great man of God John is, you won't be entirely surprised to discover that in the early church, nearly everyone who comments on this passage thinks it's the latter. That is, they say John could possibly be struggling for himself. He must be asking this question so that his disciples will hear Jesus' answer. And if that's right, he's doing a beautiful thing. He's in prison about to die, and what he's trying to do is strengthen the faith of his disciples in the Messiah who has come. The problem with that interpretation, even though it kind of takes away the puzzle of John's question for us, is it simply doesn't fit the grammar or the context of this passage, or what we're going to see for the next six chapters in the Gospel according to Matthew. Not only is John the subject of the verb to ask, Jesus explicitly responds by saying, go and announce to John. Now, personally, I find it hard to believe that Jesus is just play-acting here, going along with John, and it's all for the sake of the disciples. I mean, it is for their sake, too, and for our sake, for whom this, this portion of God's word has been written. But first and foremost, we must think it, it applies to John. In fact, the closing challenge, which is also a blessing, is singular. And in the first place, it is directed to John himself. As Professor Gibbs puts it, grammatically, John is asked a question, and Jesus gives John an answer. So what was John the Baptist struggling with? I think in some ways it's hard for us to imagine John struggling. He's so firm in his faith, everywhere else we see him in the Gospels. What was John the Baptist struggling with? Um, after all, we know that John knew a great deal of truth about Jesus, and he knew some of this truth directly from God. See, John rightly understood that the coming Messiah would bring both blessing and judgment. 
You actually heard that in our Old Covenant reading this morning from Isaiah 35. Uh, And so John, uh, at one time, famously proclaims, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin in the world. There's blessing, there's grace, there's mercy. And John also proclaimed, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly cleanse his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn up with unquenchable fire. See, the problem for John, I think, is he doesn't see the latter taking place. He had proclaimed it, but where's the vengeance of our God in bringing about this salvation? Now, we cannot be certain, but if John was expecting Jesus to to do both of these things at his first coming, it is likely that he would also have expected Jesus to follow the regular old covenant pattern of God bringing judgment and mercy. Judgment comes first. God brings judgment. And after the chastising judgment, God brings mercy. And all he hears about Jesus is Jesus is bringing mercy. And to horrible sinners. I mean, Jesus is already being mocked for being a friend of sinners. Right? And it doesn't fit John's expectations. Jesus was pouring out mercy even on notorious sinners. Yet he did not seem to be bringing about the judgment of God. And furthermore, if Jesus is the Messiah promised in the Old Testament, and the Messiah was going to overcome evil in this world, why in the world was John in Herod's uh, prison? See, John, this great righteous man of God being in Herod's prison, makes it seem like instead of good overcoming evil, evil is overcoming God's good. In fact, it's having a field day at that very time. Do you understand the tension? There's a real tension here between what some of the Old Testament passages said the Messiah was going to do and what John was experiencing in his own life. And what about that great messianic prophecy from Isaiah 61, which, by the way, is referred to in Jesus' answer. Um, This is the passage that Jesus will actually use when he preaches his very first sermon in his home synagogue in Nazareth. Because of that, it's famous, and you all know the words. Jesus says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Now for us, 20 centuries later, Those words are so beautiful that we can just kind of let them flow over us and not pay too much attention to the ramifications of what those words say. But John couldn't do that. If the Messiah was supposed to set the captives at liberty, right, deliver the righteous from prison, what in the world was he doing in prison? One of the most righteous men of his day, indeed of all time. Do you see... Now why I call this a faithful question. There were good biblical reasons for John to be confused. 
See, it turns out that interpreting prophecy is a lot easier after it's already been fulfilled and then explained for us. John had good biblical reasons to be confused. Now, John could have kept quiet in order to maintain an outwardly pious veneer. You get that, right? He could have kept his concerns to himself. And that's something you're going to be tempted to do and I'm going to be tempted to do. When it doesn't seem that God's promises are matching up with the reality of our lives and the world today, it's very easy to say, I won't say that to anyone because I want to appear to be more pious than perhaps I actually am. But that's wrong. The faithful response is to take our confusion and bring it to Jesus, just like John the Baptist does. See, John is showing us a better way. We should bring our confusion to Jesus with the confidence that Jesus both has the answers and that he desires to lead us to solid ground. Let me say that again. If you trust and obey Jesus, the Lord will work to move you away from confusion and towards understanding and stability. If you disbelieve and disobey Jesus, you will move to greater hardness of heart and to that stumbling which results in a disastrous fall. Beloved, everything depends on what you do with Jesus. Uh, John's words also focus us on the question of Jesus' identity. And our Lord makes clear in his answer that the right answer is an emphatic yes. I am the one who is to come. In fact, he does it in such a strong way because he knows that John is devoted to the scriptures of the Old Testament. And so he draws attention to six different sets of miracles that all show he's fulfilling the very prophecies of Isaiah that point forward to the coming Messiah. You can't get more certain than having God's own word on it. Please look at verses 4 and 5 with me. I should say, he not only gives a yes, because he could have just said yes, right? He actually also, through his answer, shows us something about the character and the mission of Jesus in his first coming. Verses 4 and 5. And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. See, John has asked a question, and Jesus is replying yes in the most emphatic terms. But he is also showing John and us the very nature and the character of his first coming. These miracles demonstrate what Jesus came to do. As we sing every year around Christmas, he comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. See, Jesus did not come simply to overthrow Herod. I, I actually fear that some American Christians would be quite happy if Jesus just came to straighten out the mess that we now have in Washington, D.C. and give us a better version of this current fallen world. Uh, there were Jews in the first century who would have been happy with that too, with Herod and the corrupt temple. But Jesus did not come simply to give us a better version of this current fallen world. He came to tear out the curse at its roots and to reverse it. Or as we sing, he comes to make his blessings flow 
far as the curse is found. All of the physical infirmities that Jesus was overcoming, and also the discrimination against the poor, he's bringing good news to the poor, were the result of mankind's rebellion against God. Jesus has come to fully reverse the curse. The wholeness and well-being that we will experience in the age to come has already crashed into history in the person of Jesus Christ. Yet because Christ's plan was not to consummate his kingdom at his first coming, but to build his church so that the kingdom of God would be filled with a vast number of people, a number that can't even be counted, as vast as the sand on the sea from every tribe, tongue, and nation, God does not eradicate evil at Christ's first coming. And that leaves us with the paradox, a paradox of faith that Jesus is calling John to embrace. As one scholar points out, there's perhaps a bit of irony in our Lord's introductory words to John, uh, to John's, through his disciples. They are to report the things that they are hearing and seeing. The blind are gaining their sight and the deaf are hearing. They are to tell John these things so that John's doubt might be removed and that he might see and hear. Although Jesus is acting in ways that John did not expect, he is everything that John was hoping for and infinitely more. We are intended to see and hear of his truth as well. Although the power of God has broken into history in the person of Jesus Christ, our Lord does not simply overthrow all tyrannical powers or all evil yet. Theologians call this the already and not yet of biblical eschatology. That's a helpful concept to get, right? The kingdom of God is crashing into history, but it has not been consummated. But you can imagine how difficult it was for John to grasp this. Uh, on the other side of the cross and empty tomb, without having a completed New Testament like we do, and without having 20 centuries of Christians meditating upon the life of Christ to understand it more fully. Beloved, Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. Because Christ has already died and triumphantly risen over the grave, we enjoy the already. And we look forward to hope to the not yet, when Christ will return and consummate his kingdom, and the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God, even as the waters cover the sea. That brings us to a simple but demanding challenge. In verse 6, Jesus says, And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Now, that word offended is a perfectly good translation, but the idea here is offended in a way that you stumble, stumble at the risk of falling, falling away from the faith. Right? Blessed is the one who does not stumble on my account. I call this a challenge, but you'll notice that Jesus actually states it as a beatitude. Jesus is declaring God's blessing on those who don't stumble over the fact that his ministry does not conform to their preconceptions. And you know in our own day, there's a multitude of people portraying uh, their own version of Christ that is not coming from Scripture. Uh, whether, whether it's the Russian Orthodox Church pretending that Jesus is excited and blessing the invasion of 
the Ukraine as though it's some sort of holy war, or it's Americans doing the very same thing when it's America going to war. Uh, there are people hanging up uh, rainbow flags outside their so-called churches in order to celebrate things that God himself calls an abomination, and they think Jesus is blessing them and, and saying, you're the right people who really love. See, many people are trying to push Christ into their own mold, and we have to ask the question, in what ways? Notice I didn't say are we. In what ways are we doing that so we will embrace Christ as he truly is? This message is intended first for John, but also for everyone else who will ever hear or read it. Verse 6 anticipates the coming conflict over Christ's identity. Uh, from now on, that conflict will be a regular feature of his life all the way up until his crucifixion. This will actually climax in uh, Matthew chapter 16. And this, what I'm going to say now is a little brief piece, but it really does belong here in this sermon. Right? This is not an odd end around. I want you to be able to connect this passage with the following six chapters. Because in Matthew chapter 16, we have the very famous time when Jesus, very close to the end of his life, is up in Caesarea Philippi, and he asks his disciples, who do people, the masses in general, who do they say that I am? And, and you know what they respond? You're really important. You're, you're one of the prophets like Jeremiah, or maybe John the Baptist raised from the dead. John's been executed between chapter 11 and chapter 16. And then Jesus says to his disciples, but what about you? You have been my closest followers. Who do you say that I am? Peter says, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. Connect those two beatitudes. See, then when Jesus is confessed as the Messiah, Jesus pronounces his beatitude on him. Now he's offering that beatitude to John. He's saying, don't lose heart. I am the one who is to come. Blessed are you if you don't stumble over me. And I will remind you that even Peter is struggling with the messianic identity. Because the next thing Jesus will do will be to tell Peter, well, now I'm going to go to Jerusalem and die. And Peter says, far be it from you, Lord. Right? Far be it from you. And he gets one of the sharpest rebukes in scripture. Get thee behind me, Satan. See, the, this, this picture of confusion about how, who Jesus is is going to be with us from now all the way to the resurrection. And yet it's precisely the conflict that brings into focus for us who Jesus is and what he came to do. That's important for us to see, and I think it'll help you as you read through Matthew in the coming days. Nevertheless, while this is a beatitude, I think this beatitude here in Matthew 11 is in fact a challenge to us that we are to receive Jesus on his terms, not on ours. And truth be told, we all want to domesticate Jesus. If you're offended by that, you ought to go think about it a bit. We all want to domesticate Jesus, at least a little bit. We want to fit Christ into our plans rather than surrendering all our plans to him. And therefore, we need to keep on praying, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. 
And we are wise to add, and Lord, please begin with me. Blessedness, according to this verse, is based on how we respond to Jesus. And the rubber meets the road when what Jesus is doing is different from what we expected or different from what we wish he would do or say. Beloved, you are surrounded by people who are trying to recast Jesus so that he simply overlooks crass sin or even endorses the sins of their choice. But Jesus Christ is not a domesticated house cat. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. If you try to press Jesus into your own mold, you will eventually discover that he is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to you. Yet blessed are you if when Jesus surprises you and when he says things that you find really hard to hear, you undergo a conversion of your own understanding of who Jesus is, of who God is, and what he wants you to do. You need to come to understand that we're not so much seeking God's place in our plan, but our place in God's plan. So when you are confused by what the Lord is doing in the world or in your life, beloved, bring your faithful questions to Jesus in prayer and do so with an open Bible. Remind yourself that Jesus is the true Messiah who has come and that he comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Remind yourself that your current confusion is not the end of the road. That if you trust and obey Jesus, the Lord will work to move you away from confusion and towards understanding and stability. But if you disbelieve and disobey Jesus, you will move to greater hardness of heart and to that stumbling which results in a disastrous fall. Everything depends on what you do with Jesus. We cannot put Jesus in a box of our own making. And beloved, that's really good news. Because no matter how great you think Jesus Christ is this morning, he is infinitely greater than that. He is infinitely greater than we can even wrap our finite minds around. This means that the solution to our struggles and confusion is not found in ourselves, but in him. Therefore, take your confusion and your struggles and be honest with them and run to Jesus. Seek Christ in his word. Seek Christ through faithful and trusting prayer. Seek Christ in every aspect of your life because Jesus never fails. Amen.